Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. Thanks, guys. Good morning, Vox. You guys made it with the time change. Good for you guys. How many of you guys woke up and forgot about time change? Anybody? Okay, couple, yeah, a couple people, yeah. With iPhones now, it's kind of hard to do that, but hey, welcome to Vox if it's your first time or if you've been with us. A couple of things about us that you need to know. Uh, the Eucharist is the center focal point of everything that we do. It's why we gather together. It levels the playing field. It brings all of us to the table around Jesus, and we can center around that. Uh, and so you'll notice that we have the tables that are set up, and then um, after our message, we'll, we'll spend a lot of time there at the Eucharist. And so we invite you to come and participate with that. Uh, second, you'll notice that our worship uh, is very uh, invitive, and so we're not trying to coerce anybody to do anything, but however, whatever your background is, whatever you were raised in, however your experiences in worship, you're free to do that. So if you want to stand, stand. If you want to sit, sit. It's all up to you. Uh, we're inviting you to do that uh, in a way that you fit best fits you. Uh, and then lastly, you'll notice that we have a, a, a vast teaching team, uh, lots of different teachers with different theological backgrounds and ways of thinking. Uh, we actually think that makes us better, makes us more well-rounded, that we don't all have to agree on everything. Um, and so uh, we also take questions from the audiences and from people who are watching online. So if you have questions, feel free to shoot them in. Um, we'd love to answer them for you. I think we have a text number. You can text questions to this number while we're teaching or afterwards about the service or about the church, and we would love to answer those for you um, as soon as we can. Uh, a couple quick announcements. Uh, today we are doing a Sabbath workshop. Actually, I'm hosting that. Uh, so it'll be afterwards down where the other buildings are. I think it says physical education. There's some buildings down there. For those of you who've been a part of the spiritual practices workshop, it's nothing new. You'll know what it's, where it's at. Um, but come. Uh, you don't have to have signed up. If you want to come and just listen and engage in conversation about spiritual practices, and this one specifically is about the Sabbath, which I find very difficult to do. Uh, but we're going to have spend some time together talking about that and then talking about some practical ways to live that out. Uh, we also have a care workshop, which is tomorrow. I think we have an announcement for that as well. Yes, so uh, March 11th at 7, uh, that's Carrie's workshop. If you haven't signed up, you can go to voxoc.com events, uh, forward slash events, and then you can sign up there just so we can kind of get an idea of who's coming to that. Um, and so obviously that's free for you, uh, so make sure you sign up and uh, show up to that as well. And I don't know if we have another announcement, but next week we have another workshop for Women in Leadership Part 2. Uh, oh, we do have a slide. Perfect. So Women in Leadership Part 2, uh, love for you to come to that. Uh, we are going to have childcare this time, and uh, I definitely want to say that the last time we did it, it was great how many women showed up, but we also want men to show up to it too, uh, because it's not just for women to go, but it's actually for men to engage in the dialogue and have conversation, because men do have questions about, what does this look like for me? What does it look like? How can we support? How can we come alongside and help? And so uh, it's a great, great time to have conversation, so I want to invite you to that as well. So I think that's it for announcements. We're going to get started this morning. Um, I I'm not teaching. I'm going to invite my friend Wes to come out here. Uh, Wes has been a good friend of mine for, we just talked about this, over 10 years. Yeah. Um, I, I knew Wes when he was just coming out of high school. Knucklehead. Yes. And yes. Uh, I got him into ministry, which I've apologized profusely over and over again. <laughs> But he's been in ministry for a long time now, and uh, just been able to see him grow. I see him. I watched him get married. I got to be in his wedding, and uh, he is one of the most insightful uh, teachers I've ever uh, got a chance to listen to. And he looks at the text and the way that he can take uh, a text and, and apply it for us today is is profound. And so I'm excited for you to get to hear his message. But I want to get you to get to know him a little bit. So we're gonna uh, do some softball questions as we get started. So a couple questions. Uh, 
Tell us your heritage, your background, where are you from? Yeah, I uh, grew up in Orange County in Santa Ana with my mom, who is uh, Mexican, and my dad is Tongan. This used to be harder to explain uh, before Moana, and now I'm sort of just going to say, have you seen Moana? Your, your kid's seen it. Just think that. Think Maui, long hair, tattoos. That's the other half of my family in our right. background. And actually, so. when I met Wes, that's how your hair was. You had yeah, ponytail. Yeah, 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 dude. Troy yeah. Palomalu. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, you don't work out, obviously. No. Okay. No, yeah. No. Uh, CrossFit <laughs> or Orange Theory? Which one do you pick? Oh, CrossFit. Okay, so he, he likes cults, obviously. All right, so that's good. <laughs> I used to argue with you about this stuff, but now I'm just like, <laughs> no, nah, you're kind of right. It's, it's uh, yeah. 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 Um, all right, so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit, because uh, at Vox, a, a big part of um, our community is the journey yeah. and what the faith journey has been yeah. like. And, and I think for a lot of us deconstructing this uh, realization that you don't have to have arrived, right. but that you can be part on this journey together. So would you share a little bit about yeah. your journey of faith as to where you're at now? Yeah, I love that. Uh, so I didn't grow up in church. Uh, my mom's side of the family was Catholic. My dad's side was Seventh-day Adventist. We didn't really go to church. I didn't go to catechism growing up. Uh, I would pray primarily before a football game. It was sort of a superstitious sort of like, <laughs> God help me out. Thank you. You know, um, I can do all things through, through God sort of a vibe. But that was about it. And when that dream, football was life, and it was everything that I was pouring myself into, in Polynesian homes, going to a Division One school, playing football, like that is what you live for. That's mm. to send home a jersey or a sweater from a university is everything. And when that didn't work out, um, I ended up at a church, church that Ronnie was at, and, um, and I remember hating it. It was like the worst. I showed up at church and everyone was smiling and really happy and really, really friendly. And there was like seven greeters on the way in that said hi, that <laughs> smiled at me. And I was just, I just wasn't into it. I, I felt like the people on the stage didn't have anything in common with me. I was like, you're mm. just living in a different world. Mm. Um, but it was my first time hearing about Jesus, and I hadn't heard about him at all. And so I sat there, um, eyebrows furrowed, kind of mad that people were fake, but wanted to listen to Jesus. And I already have like RBF, arresting jerk face, whatever you want to <laughs> say. Uh, but I remember just sitting there listening to the message and, and hearing about Jesus. and. They did altar calls there. Uh, I was too scared to, to make my way down to the altar, but I prayed at my seat. Yeah. And I stole a Bible from the lost and found on my way out. <laughs> Started reading that. Um, but came to faith and got involved with the church. Um, eventually was on staff there. And had a really rough go of it in ministry and just sort of uh, had a time where I was disillusioned with church or church leadership. I was, I was 18 or 19 years old, man. And it was like, what the pastor said was what God was saying. Mm. And so with people on that high of a pedestal, um, you're sort of bound to have, have problems, right? And so I uh, was working at a church, then wasn't working at a church. Uh, I moved on to a new season of life, where that's what the email said. You know, in church, <laughs> when you get fired, you have spiritual you're Transitioning, yeah, you're transitioning like, off. Yeah, God's yeah. writing the next chapter of right. your story, not on our staff. <laughs> and so... You know, God wrote a new chapter. Some people who work at a church, I hear. Yeah, and I went back to school, and I uh, was working at Starbucks making frappuccinos. Like, that was it. And then um, still going to church. I think what I learned in that season, because when I first got into church, it was all about you read your Bible every day, and you number the days, and you journal, and you got to show up every single day. And as I got farther and farther into the journey, um, 
just realizing it wasn't about me showing up every day, that whether I showed up or not, God was going to be there. Come on. And I didn't have to have every answer. I didn't have to have everything locked down. Um, but there was room for mystery. And I've learned just to appreciate every season of your faith. Mm. Um, because, man, I, Jesus was so new. And, and I remember I just, I am, um, it's even emotional not thinking about it. I so wanted to go back to like the first few weeks when I felt like, man, I really loved Jesus then. And I had mm. stopped doing the things I wasn't supposed to do anymore. And anytime life got rough, I'd look back and I'd want to be back there in the beginning mm. when I really loved God and realizing that God was going to be there through every season. I could appreciate where I was at and God wasn't any less with me when I had my questions or when I was hurt. Um, and so I thought that I was free and out of church and out of ministry. And then this guy texted me and was like, hey, they need someone to do a spoken word poem, but they don't want to pay him a lot. So <laughs> the junior varsity guy's going to be here. That's you. And so then I did it. Um, and it went well, and I ended up back on a church staff working, um, where I'm still working, um, still teaching on a regular basis. Uh, but I just love what, what you, you guys are about as a community. I love uh, that you guys don't have to have every answer, but you're pursuing that together in community and relationships. You guys are having workshops. You're opening up space for conversation where you can ask a question and not be shamed for it. So yeah, sort of where I'm at. Awesome, man. Thank you. Yeah. Um, let me pray for you, and then thank I'll you. let you teach to everybody. Uh, God, thank you uh, for Wes. Thank you for the journey that you've had him on. Thank you for um, the different seasons of his life that you have continued to walk with him uh, as a friend, as uh, someone who's got to see you working in and through him. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have him here with us. I pray that you would anoint his words. God, would you prepare our hearts and our minds now to hear uh, through Wes uh, what it is that you might be saying to us, God. So we thank you. We love you. All of God's people said, amen. amen. All right, here's Wes. Thank you. Uh, so I kind of got to intro myself a little bit, but I brought a few uh, photos. A uh, photo of my wife, Taylor. There she is. We got married in 2015. Um, one of God's greatest gifts, if not the greatest gift, uh, that I've received. I am married not because I earned it. Ronnie introduced us uh, at that church we met there, and Ronnie had recommended me as like, Wes is a good guy, and Taylor needed more convincing than Ronnie's recommendation. But eventually she came over and, and decided to believe. Uh, we don't have any kids, but I do have a firstborn. His name is Rush. Uh, Look, I get it. Some of the parents are judging, like, it's not a child. It's, I know, okay, but just let me enjoy my boy. Just let me be where I am in my journey. I get it. I'm not a parent. I understand that. Still my dude. Love that guy. Uh, but that's where we are. That's where we are as a family. Um, and uh, we're excited, excited to be here with you and to talk this morning. Uh, for those of you guys who are married, you know, one of the great gifts of marriage is freedom from your own delusions about yourself, right? Marriage has the unique ability to make you aware of where you are delusional about who you are and what you are like. Uh, before I got married, uh, I would have described myself as someone who was easygoing, go with the flow, like I'm just, I'm Polynesian, I'm Tongan, we're used to island time, don't go faster than you can go in flip-flops. Like, this is me, and I'm relaxed, and, and I'm patient, and I'm slow moving, uh, to which my lovely wife Taylor has helped me come to the realization that that is actually not the case, that I am uh, not the most slow moving or patient person, that I actually like to know where I'm going, what the plan is, what's on schedule. Uh, and I asked her like, two weeks ago, 
hey, I think I'm a pretty patient guy. What do you think? And my first mistake was I asked this question while driving, <laughs> while in a car. And it was like she had been waiting for months because she had three things just to lay out, bang, 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 in a row. I was like, whoa, you're way too prepared for this question. But it's fine. And she's like, so let's just talk about your driving. Wes, what does the yellow light mean? Go, obviously. Okay. Uh, Wes, when you're stopped at a stoplight and the person in front of you sees a green light, how many seconds do they have to accelerate before they're kindly reminded by you that it's time to go? 2.23 seconds, I feel like is a generous amount of time. One, 1,000, two, 1,000, and it's time to be moving. Okay. Uh, if you have to drive an extra seven miles to get to a destination, but you get to move and not stop to avoid traffic on the freeway, if you're gonna drive an extra seven miles of side streets to get somewhere, you know, get there at the same time as you would if you were sitting in traffic, are you driving that extra? Yes. Now, if you went three for three on that test, I would say, well done, like, good job, we can be friends. Uh, I'd also say maybe Maybe we can grow in our patience. Maybe we together can grow in what it means to be patient. Uh, but I want to talk today about patience and its relationship to forgiveness. But biblical patience goes far beyond our ability to wait in line, our ability to wait at a stoplight, our ability to wait for our Amazon package, even though we're checking every 30 minutes to see if it's shipped, when it's arriving, what time will it get here. Biblical patience is an idea far beyond, can I take three seconds? Can I inhale for three, hold it for three, and exhale? Can I wait? Biblical patience, the actual Hebrew word means to be long, or to be long-suffering, to be enduring, uh, most meaningfully in relationship. How can I be enduring? How can I be long-suffering in relationship? How can I continue to absorb maybe hurt, maybe pain, minor things that are forgotten, minor issues that, that pop up, or major things? How can I continue to be enduring in the relationships that I'm a part of? But as human beings, we understand that we have limitations in all things. To be human is to be dependent, to be limited. None of us are infinite. None of us can go without stopping, without food, without water, without sleep. We all depend on things, whether it's physically, biologically, socially. We rely on one another. So when we're talking about patience, this understanding of I'm limited in my ability to endure, I'm limited in my ability to be patient. And we're constantly and frequently introduced to those limitations, but how do we expand those? How can I be someone who actually is patient? That's what we want to talk about today. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, maybe you're not a Bible person, maybe you're not a Jesus person yet. Uh, Peter's one of Jesus' followers, and he has this question about patience. How much do I have to put up with? How much do I have to endure? And Jesus answers his question about patience, but he also relates it to forgiveness. And it says this in Matthew 18. It says, Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? as many as seven times. He's asking the basic question, how much do I have to put up with? How much do I have to deal with? Like, how long do I have to put up with this person before what, before I get to cut them off? See, that's the part of the question that Peter leaves out. It's, how many times do I have to forgive? When do I get to stop? 
when do I get to cut them off? When is it actually okay for me to stop dealing with you and your nonsense, right? That's in the subtext there. Is when do I get to cut them off? And he's even so, so brash as to say seven times, which was beyond the Jewish expectation. And then Jesus replies, I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. <laughs> and it's such a Jesus the answer. Jesus basically says, unlimited. And you can feel everyone, including myself, sort of roll your eyes. Like, yes, that's cute. That's a very Jesus-like thing to say. But that's actually not helpful. So I just have to deal with everything that's brought to me. So I just have to continue to absorb, continue to deal. And it actually doesn't help us unless we understand forgiveness. Because Jesus is going to answer his question, say 70 times 7, but then he's going to tell a story about forgiveness. He's going to tell a parable about forgiveness. But before I go on, I want to make sure before we talk in church about forgiveness, we get a few things um, clear. Maybe this is part disclaimer, part apology. Many of our church traditions, many of our faith traditions are centered around this idea of forgiveness, forgiving your neighbor, forgiving yourself, receiving forgiveness, confession, and forgiveness for sins. But I want to talk about what forgiveness isn't before we jump into it. Some of you may have been hurt because forgiveness was a burden that it was never designed to be. Forgiveness, this thing that was designed to liberate you, actually became an oppressive weight. Forgiveness is not a matter of condoning. To forgive is not to condone. It's not merely stamping it as, hey, it's okay. I forgive you, it's okay. Some things have happened in a lot of your stories that aren't okay. And when being approached with the idea, the action of forgiving, is not the same as you being asked to condone something, to call something that was wrong all right, to call an abuse okay, to call an injustice all right. It's not condoning. It's not saving from consequence. You can be actively engaged in the process of forgiveness and still need to call the police and still need to get help and still allow someone to go through the consequences for their actions. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Some of you guys are desiring to forgive someone for something and to hear, hey, forgiving is the same as forgetting. Some of you guys have tried your hardest to forget and you literally can't forget. So when you hear that forgiving is forgetting, it makes you crazy. Because if you for could forget the pain, if you could forget what was taken, if you could forget the hurt, you would. So forgiveness can't merely be condoning, saving from consequences. It can't be forgetting, and it doesn't have to be reconciliation. To forgive someone does not mean that both parties are reconciled and the relationship is restored to what it was. Reconciliation is a matter of two parties. Forgiveness can happen with one. I want to say, 
if you've been in a church context that's asked you to forgive and subject yourself to abuse repeatedly and voluntarily for fear of your relationship with God being in jeopardy or compromised, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not asking them to enslave themselves to the burden of forgiveness. He's actually giving them the opportunity to walk away as free people through engaging in forgiveness. So Jesus jumps into this parable. Now, before I read the parable, what you have to know about parables is they were stories that always had something planted in them that did not belong. Sometimes you read through it like, oh yeah, that sort of makes sense. The listeners of that time would have very clearly understood makes sense, makes, nah, that's way out of there to the point where it could have been disregarded as comical or ridiculous. So Jesus is gonna tell a story about forgiveness, but we have to be clear about what stands out, what doesn't belong. And he begins his parable and says this in verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. This is an astronomical amount. This is millions of dollars. Who, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had, everything he had be sold to pay the debt. Now that to us stands out as alarming, as different, as new, as woe that wouldn't have been outlandish to the hearers. The idea of debt slavery being sold into slavery for not paying your debts was normal at the time. It was a normal practice in the first century. That wouldn't have sounded any alarms. Uh, someone settling an account saying, pay what you owe, I lent you this, it's time to pay it back, oh, you can't pay it back. All this is normal. But what you do need to take hold of is, in a conversation about forgiveness, Jesus discusses debt. Remember, we're still talking about how long do I have to put up with that person? How much do I have to deal with? How often do I have to forgive them? When do I get to stop forgiving them? And Jesus begins to talk about this idea of debt. When we're having conversations about forgiveness, we're ultimately having a conversation about debt. Something was taken that wasn't restored. There was something that was lost that's not been repaid. There's something that was owed to someone that hasn't been returned. Many times in situations where we feel like forgiveness is impossible, it's typically because we believe what was taken from us can't be restored, right? I could never forgive them. I could never get back the time. I could never get back that part of my life. I'll never be the same. I couldn't forgive them because Nothing's been the same. When we're talking about forgiveness, we're talking about what might have been lost, whether it's value, significance, respect, time, health. Maybe it was financial. Maybe it was a betrayal of a partnership or a friendship. But there's a discussion happening about how do we handle what's been lost in relationships. How do we handle a deficit that's been created? And it says in verse 26, at this the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me. He asks not for forgiveness, but for patience. 
Be patient with me, and I'll pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. He falls face down and asks for patience, but he receives forgiveness. He doesn't say, forgive me. He just says, give me more time. Another thing that's commonly said in our relationships, just give me time. I'll be better. I'll do better. I'll make it up to you. I'll pay you back. Just give me more time. But then the master does what he wasn't even willing to ask for, and he forgives him the loan. Now, that is the ridiculous part of the story. It's beyond reasonable. It's beyond anyone's expectations. Reasonable compassion would have been, okay, I'll give you more time. Generous compassion would have been, I'll reduce the debt. You don't have to pay all of it. I'll reduce some of it. Maybe I'll give you, uh, we'll, we'll set out a payment plan. You bring me this by this amount of time and but we'll work it out. We'll figure out a way. But what we're not going to do is leave somebody in the red, primarily myself. What we're not going to do is have me absorb the loss that you owe me. It would have been laughable. It's bad business. Who here has ever been to the bank? <laughs> and you know what? You know what, Wes? We feel like you're a good guy and we feel bad for you. You know what? You actually don't owe us our debt. We're going to be in the red for you. That is the gospel story. If anyone in here has that kind of a story, I want to hear about you and your relationship with God and what has made you so blessed. <laughs> but we don't hear that story. That's a ridiculous notion that the bank, that the lender is going into debt on someone's behalf. But that's the claim of the story. That really was the claim of Jesus, that God himself was not going to demand that humanity pay back its debts, but that he himself would absorb the debt. See, to understand forgiveness, it's not to neglect what was lost. It's not to neglect or ignore the deficit. In fact, if you Ignore the deficit that's been created. You actually rob forgiveness of its power. You rob it of its meaning when you simply wax over what's been lost. The only reason this has any sort of meaning, any sort of power, is if you make it one where someone is losing. Because masters didn't go into debt for their slaves. The CEO does not go into debt for the person making a minimum hourly wage. This was a ridiculous notion then, and it's a ridiculous notion now. That's not how those in power stay in power, by going into debt for their slaves, and yet it's a part of the story. It's a part of what Jesus is bringing forward, this ridiculous notion that he at the top would lose on behalf of those who had no means to pay it back, who had no ability to pay it back. And yet this is what we see, and there's this grand gesture of generous forgiveness. But that's actually only half of Jesus' story. If the story ends there, then it seems like the conclusion is pretty simple. It's almost like a spiritual version of hurt people, hurt people, forgiven people, forgive people. But the story continues, and things actually get a little more messy and a little more complicated. <clears throat> and we jump into verse 28, and it says, that servant who had just been forgiven, just been freed, 
That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a far smaller sum, a fraction of what he owed. And he grabbed him and started choking him and said, pay what you owe. You ever wanted to do that in a relationship? Pay me what you owe me. No, just me? Okay. This man's been forgiven a debt. He walks away and demands, pay me what you owe me. That is how so many of our relationships can function. Pay me what you owe me. Give me back the value that you took. Redeem the time. Heal the betrayal. Pay me what you owe me. Give me back what was lost. Give me back who I was before. And the idea of standing and choking someone for them to pay us what they owe us, yes, it sounds outlandish and ridiculous. But how many of us have been tenacious in relationships simply because we're demanding that we be paid what we're owed? Give me what I deserve. I gave so much into this relationship. I invested so much. At least pay me back. You don't got to give me more. But how do we get back to even? Because I don't think it's fair that I lost so much when I gave so much. This man's been forgiven, and yet he's not reciprocating that. And he's demanding. He's going back to a life in relationship that says, I will be paid what I'm owed. I will receive what I deserve. I will hold everyone accountable to pay me what they owe me at all times, or there'd be a fraction of what I've ever owed someone, but I will receive what's mine. And it says that this, his fellow servant fell down, fell face down and began begging him, be patient with me, I'll pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that he was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Now this is an opportunity for this story and forgiveness to become a burden. Where we've heard an opportunity where forgiveness can be healing and restorative, and now with an ending like that, it's like, well, if I wasn't interested in forgiving before, being jailed and tortured doesn't sound all that pleasant. I guess I don't really have any options. Now, you have to understand that the Jewish hearers at the time, Matthew was literally written to Jews, had no construct for this idea of hell or being tortured. You have to understand that the story is simply returning to its regularly scheduled programming. We had this moment where God inserts some ridiculous idea of forgiveness and then literally at the end, things are just going back to, and here's what it plays out when, here's what it looks like when things go back to normal. When you go back to demanding that everyone pay what they owe, you yourself will be enslaved again. 
when you go back to living and holding everyone accountable at all times, you yourself, Peter, you will be enslaved again to the debts of those around you. You will be back into a life where you're constantly demanding that people pay what they owe. And that, my friends, is its own slavery. Jesus wasn't just trying to get them to do the right thing to avoid the next life. He was trying to liberate them and free them in their current life. And they could not be free people. They could not be lovers of God and neighbor while holding all the world accountable to frequently pay them back for what they had given. God was going to ask them to give freely and not demand that they be paid back. The call there was to say, I can liberate you and I can free you and forgiveness can be that pathway, but make no mistake about it, you can re-enslave yourself. You can walk back into a life where you're actually oppressed. You actually have the opportunity and the ability to imprison yourself where forgiveness is absent. Forgiveness is a journey that we're called to, to engage with. It's a process that we're called to wrestle with and work through. Uh, this past year, I had the opportunity to travel with my wife and my dad to the island of Tonga. It was a 14-hour flight down to the South Pacific, this little pancake of an island. Uh, and I remember we touched down and it was me, my dad, his family. I got to see where my dad grew up. I got to see this humble little island uh, just out in the Pacific. And I got to go see where my grandparents raised him. I got to see uh, their home. I got to meet all my aunts and uncles. I got to see just the most random places. Hey, this is where you know, I got stung by a bunch of bees. I just got to be there for all of it. This was my room. Uh, I got to experience the culture. I got to eat the food. I got to be there. I got to have my wife be there. Um, and that brought us closer. And it was beautiful. And I got to uh, know my dad in a way that I didn't when I was younger. Uh, because I didn't grow up with my dad. I grew up with my mom. And she raised us. I had my mom, myself, and my younger brother. Uh, and that's what we had. And and that was our life. And I grew up not really knowing a lot about my dad at all. Um, if you were to ask me, what's your dad's favorite anything, really? I couldn't give you an answer. I grew up without him. And what I lost growing up without a dad, I lost experience. I lost innocence. Whatever it's like to feel like you're growing up with someone to protect you and watch over you, that was lost. Whatever experiences you're supposed to have with a dad, those things were lost. A deficit was created. That was felt. That was painful. Whenever something goes wrong with our car and Taylor comes over and says, hey, there's an issue with the car. I feel no, I, I don't know that I could feel any smaller than in those situations. Even now, when I shave and I nick myself 
and a little blood comes out. There's a part of me that feels like, yeah, aren't dad supposed to teach you that stuff? Aren't dad supposed to teach you how to change a flat? Innocence was lost. Value was lost. The sense of identity and significance was lost. And for almost 30 years, I demanded that my dad pay me what he owed me. I lost that. Pay it back. Or you know what? You can't pay it back. So just, I'm good. We're making it without you. It's fine. I don't need your help. I have three photos with me and my father in them. One when I was a baby, one outside of a football game when I was 18 years old. And the photo I think you guys just saw of me, my wife, and my father in his homeland. That photograph is only possible if I don't demand that he restore what he can't, what he doesn't have the ability to. That photograph is literally only possible if I don't demand that he restore the innocence that was lost. If I don't make that decision repeatedly, leading up to the photo and after the photo. Forgiveness is about choosing to release people of debts they have no means to pay back to not restore the value they have no means to give back. My father's not God. He couldn't give back time. He had no means to give back a childhood. He had no means to protect me from things he wasn't there to protect me from, to undo scars. Now, I don't have to neglect that to forgive him, but it is a process to say, I will not demand that you pay for it. I'm in a relationship with God, and I'm going to ask that God restore what you can't, which for a lot of us sounds like a ridiculous notion. Some of you guys have stories where you say it's impossible for what's lost to be restored, and maybe you're right, but maybe we ask God for ridiculous things anyways because I don't know when we decided we were only going to ask God for what was reasonable. Yeah, that's too out there. That's too much, God. I'm actually going to settle for what I can fathom, and I'm just going to ask for that. As Christian people, we have a unique opportunity in a relationship with God to ask that God can restore what people can't. And that's a journey. That's a journey that you are equipped to walk in as a part of this community where it's safe to ask questions, where it's safe to talk, it's safe to be in community, to talk with a community pastor, to show up to a workshop, to show up to a dinner together. That opportunity is present for you. But I think there's two, two ways that you might want to respond or engage with forgiveness today. The first thing I would invite you to, if this is something that you're looking towards, the first thing is ownership. Now when I say ownership, I'm not asking you to own fault. I'm not saying own your part in it. No, 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 no. 
But can you name the loss? Can you name what was taken? Can you name where you were when it was taken? Can you name who took it? And not by title, not by their job title, not by their family title, but their name. And can you name what was lost there? Maybe in the moment, maybe would it cost you five years from that point, maybe 10 years from that point? Can you name what it's costing you now? Can you just own it and name it? And maybe that's your step of faith today, is to have the bravery, the courage to simply reflect and say, this was lost. This created a deficit. This is what was taken. Maybe that's your step of faith. Maybe that's where Jesus will walk with you today, is to just take a moment to say, here's what was taken, and to acknowledge that it was painful, to acknowledge maybe that it hurt. Just to simply name it and say that it's there. Maybe beyond ownership, beyond naming it, you can take another step of faith into invitation. To say this is what was lost, this is what was taken, this is what's missing. This is what I haven't had the ability to restore myself or extract from other people. God, could you restore what they can't and what I can't? God, would you bring restoration? God, would you fill in the gap? God, would you make up the deficit? Whether by your spirit in a powerful profound spiritual experience or what I've seen most profoundly through community. I didn't forgive my dad because I'm a good person. It's because I had a community around me because my family invested in me sitting with a counselor and talking through it that God had provided That journey was not a journey alone. But if we can own it, we can invite God into it. And not just God, but God's people, restoration, healing are possible. And I believe that's what God wants for us as we journey through towards forgiveness and towards restoration so that we can be a healing force in the world, so that we can model it and extend that out beyond ourselves into the community. But I want to pray for us. Uh, before we respond. God, thank you for everyone in the room. Um, And God, each of us and all of our stories, there's places where there's been a loss, where there's been a deficit that's been created. And God, it takes so much faith even just to name it, even just to, to say it within ourselves. I thank you for the bravery, for the courage, for the faith that's present in the room to dare to acknowledge what's been lost, to not hide from it, to not run from it, but to face it. Holy Spirit, would you gently lead and guide your people through that journey to know that they're not facing it alone, they're not standing by themselves, they're not without hope, 
Because God, you can do all things. You do have the ability to bring healing and to restore and to make up those deficits, God. To be there for us and with us. God, I just want to ask that you would provide healing, whether it's now through your spirit in this moment, whether it's in the coming weeks and months, as this community journeys together towards freedom, freedom from past scars, hurts, and losses. God, would you make them one? Would you bind them together that they could walk together? Would you speak through your community to one another to encourage one another, to bring grace and healing through one another? I thank you, Lord, and I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this morning, as we move towards the Eucharist, with that message in mind, with the idea of forgiveness and patience and reconciliation, we move at the Eucharist, which is the symbol of that very thing that says that you are invited, that you are welcome, that a debt has been paid, that you can come and freely participate in the body of Christ. And so uh, the band's going to play a few songs, and we're just going to take communion together. Our community pastors are moving at the communion tables now. Gluten-free is at this table if you need it. Um, And the community pastors will be around. If you want someone to talk to you, I know with a message like that, sometimes there might be things that you're wrestling with, and if you want someone to talk with, um, you can have them pray with you as well. Um, And so as you feel led, and as you want to move around the room and take communion, do it at your time, do it at your pace when you're ready, um, and the band's going to continue to play. But this is your time to respond now. Oh, well, Vox, thank you guys for coming. Uh, Seriously, from the bottom of my heart, thank you guys for believing in this community uh, and committing to be here and to be a part of this community. For some of you, I know that's like a no-brainer. You do it anyway. But for others, you know, it's a commitment to actually uh, to come up and to show and be in this place when you could do a thousand other things. So thank you for doing that. Uh, This has been like a crazy journey for us, right? This This is like an experiment in how not to do church according to today's standards. So we take questions. Uh, we just simply invite you to be who you are and not pretend. And so I think that's, uh, this is a unique place. And so we're grateful for you committing to be here. We're grateful for the volunteers who come, who show up early to set up, to make sure that the communion is ready, to make sure that there's kids uh, ministry that's available. So thank you from the bottom of our heart to committing to this place. Yes. Yes. It means a great deal to us because um, me as a part of the leadership and the core leadership fundamentally believe in this place and in what it's doing. And so thank you for that. If you'd like to continue to participate in what we're doing, you can do that either volunteering or you can do it financially. There are some giving boxes on either side of this room right now in the lobby as well. You can also do it online. Um, but thank you again for coming and being a part of it. We look forward to next week. Don't forget, there's a Sabbath uh, workshop after this. If you want to, about 1145, we'll start. Um, Carrie's workshops next week, and then we have a women in leadership one next week after that. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.